of a ranger, the unsuspecting stranger, had better know the truth of wrong from right. Cause the eyes of the ranger are upon you. Any wrong you do, he's gonna see. When you're in Texas, look behind you. Cause that's where the ranger's gonna be. One of the most interesting cases that I ever had was the uh, representing John Newton for then participating in the robbery of the Coleman Bank in Coleman, Texas. And it happened about a year or so after uh, Walter Woodward won for attorney general against old Bill McCraw. And that must have been about 34, somewhere along there, 33 or 34. But anyway, uh, 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 here's, how, here's what happened, and then I'll go into it. There were three boys from Oklahoma. I don't know whether all of them from Oklahoma or not, but John Newton was. He lived in Chickasha, Oklahoma, and he was the one that I finally represented. There were two other boys, one of them named Robards, and uh, the other named Shipley. And they got together and decided they were going to rob this bank in Coleman. It looked like a sitting duck for them. And so um, they, got, uh, they got their wives. Shipley had a, uh, had, a, had a wife. Robards had a wife. Shipley was not married. He didn't have his wife with him. But John Newton had his wife, and, and Robards had his wife. And they came down to San Angelo. And they, took, uh, they had three automobiles. And they, had, uh, they, they, they took a room there somewhere in one of the motels or hotels. And then they went down and scouted around Coleman and, and cased the job, so to speak, what they thought had to be the best way to rob this bank. Now, the bank was located just south across the square from the, the courthouse. And it's an old, old courthouse, and the courthouse had a pretty tough sheriff, as I remember of it. They had, uh, he was an uh, old gung-ho land uh, officer, and it wouldn't hurt him to kill a man if he'd had to. But anyway, uh, they decided they were going to rob this bank on a certain day. And so what they did, they, they uh, stole an automobile, and then they took that one in one of their own cars. And they hid their own car out back of the Santa Ana Mountain there, just west of Coleman. Then they came on in and the, the stolen car and, and to the bank, and they got in there about 8 o'clock in the morning. They wanted to get the, thing, get the robbery over and get it done with. Well, they got into the bank. As soon as one of the officers came down and opened the doors, and they walked in with him, and they told him what their purpose were. They didn't have masks on. And uh, he told him, he said, well, boys, I, I, I'll give you everything I've got to rather than have you kill me, but uh, we have a time lock on this vault, and it won't open until 9 o'clock. Now, you're set to stay here for an hour if you're going to have to do that or leave. Well, they, they decided they are going to stay there and rob it. And there was that sheriff sitting across, that, uh, across the street, right across the street from them. And people coming in and going. Well, everybody that come into the bank before nine were employees, of course. And as they come in, one at a time, they'd take them over and lay them down on the floor and, and make them lay there. And they're waiting for this nine o'clock vault open. And so there's one old boy came in, and uh, he's one of the tellers of the vice president or something, but he's well dressed up, and he just scared the living hell out of him when John Newton stuck his pistol in his belly and told him to get over and lay down on the floor, and he was just shaking all over, and John got tickled, he told me about it. Later he said, the old boy, when he laid down, he was, he was just simply having hysteria almost, he was frightened, and he laid down in a pile of dust over there that the janitor had swept up the night before, and so I pitched him a silver dollar, John said, and told him to get his suit clean and pressed after we left because I'd had to make him lay down on that and it wasn't his fault. He wasn't going to take any of his money. We are just going to take the bank's money. Anyway, they stayed in there till 9 o'clock and then they, they got out and they run off with about twenty four, twenty five thousand dollars $25,000 and they got away with it. And the alarm wasn't out till 
they'd gotten, made a clean sweep out of it. They went on out by the Sandy Anna Mountain, and they'd pick up their own car and left the stolen car out there so that they have no identification on them where they went. And they went on back to San Angelo, and they got in their cars, and, and they had no better way to escape than to just come right on back down through Central Texas, and instead of scattering, they stayed together. And, of course, by dark, when they left, uh, they left San Angelo a little before dark, because they got into to Johnson City a little bit after dark. And so they were riding along all three together. But the, the boys had the wives, two of them had the wives, and Shipley was in his car by himself. But each one of them had about $8,000 and, and maybe $800 to $1,000 of their own money that, that they'd brought along with them to use in case they, their job didn't pan out and they'd have to hire a lawyer or something to get them out of jail. But anyway, old John had about uh, nearly $9,000 on him. And of that is about uh, $80, $100 worth of silver. He'd gotten a little sack of silver and the boys had divided the silver up. But anyway, they come on back, and as they come through Johnson City, the, the rangers from all over Texas nearly was uh, just everywhere. They had roadblocks set up everywhere in the country. And these boys come right back through those roadblocks. Instead of going west, they, they come on back si- southeast. And so uh, they, they, were, they throwed flashlights on them as they come through Johnson City there, and, and uh, they didn't search them. They just uh, they, they didn't, they didn't look like the, the three men that had robbed. They had their wives with them, and so they saw nothing suspicious. And I think their, their license plates were all right. But anyway, they didn't, they wasn't, didn't stop them. And all three of them drove on down east of, of Johnson City and got down to Miller's Creek, where uh, that intersection where one road turns to Austin and the other one goes on to San Antonio. And so uh, there's no cars right close to them then, so they got together and held a powwow. They said, this don't look good. They, they, they're going to catch us if we stay together. So they decided they split up there. And Shipley was going to take the road to Austin, and Roe Boys was going to take the road to San Antonio, and John and uh, his wife were going to go back to Johnson City and turn out and go out the Burnett County Road, uh, over toward Burnett. And so that's what happened. Roe Boys took out for uh, San Antonio, and he got out there somewhere, so I understand later, I don't know who, who gave me the information, that he buried his money in a, in a pasture out there somewhere, and his wife drove him on down the devil's backbone somewhere back in there and got him into Kyle, and he caught a freight train and, and got away. Shipley came on into Austin, and uh, I don't know where he got. He all got on back into Oklahoma, but eventually Shipley was killed in another bank robbery. But old John and his wife, they went back to Johnson City, and then they turned and went on this to road toward Bunnett, and they got out to where the Lano uh, Lane turned off west, and, and they decided maybe they better get out in the pasture and stay till morning. They was kind of lost. They thought they was lost. And so they started, they turned west and started up toward Lano on this Lano Lane road. And old John said that he, he had seen cattle guards, and he knew what they were, and and he knew that, uh, but he'd never seen a bump gate before. In Oklahoma, he'd had run in in bump gates. And said that, of course, he's, he was just excited as the devil because he knew these people was after him. But said he went back in his pasture way and he ran into a bump gate. And he figured that they had barricaded uh, the road ahead of him and that they would going to capture him. And so he said he hit that thing just as hard as he could going through it, so he busted down. And when he did, of course, the back end flew in his tail and, and nearly knocked his car out. And that got him excited. He scared the devil out of him. And he said he took out. And the next category he come to, instead of being a level one, was about six feet out of, I mean, six inches out of, pl- out of, out of level. They had a, that, a step up on it. You had to go with it right easy. Well, he hit it going full speed, and they just sprung his car all the hell in back. And then when his car come down from the leap it made, it wouldn't run anymore. So there he was and his wife out there after dark, after after midnight in the middle of this pasture just lost. And they were getting disgusted and the money didn't seem to save too well to him. But he said that he toted this $800, I mean this uh, uh, 
eighty or hundred dollars. Might have been eight hundred dollars. I don't know. It was a whole lot, whole lot more cash than he ought to have been carrying around. But he gave up on that and left it laying out in the pasture there somewhere. And about daylight, they come up on the farmhouse, and his wife was just deathly ill. So he went in and gave up to the farmer and the rancher, and they called in and told the law, and they come a swarming out there, and they grabbed old John and put handcuffs all over him and took his wife, and, and they took uh, all his money, of course. And there's uh, one of those rangers from Houston. He dressed up like Tom Mix, and he got John's money, and, and he knew that uh, what the bank uh, had coming to it, and John's $800 disappeared in, in the melee there somewhere. Anyway, John said that they didn't report all the money they took from him. They just reported what he got out of the bank, and his $800 uh, lost. Uh, they lost sight of it somewhere when they, when they captured him. But they brought him on back down to Austin, and uh, Lee Allen was sheriff then, and and uh, of course John said he'd like to talk to a lawyer and Lee was my friend so he called me up and said Emmett you might can do this boy some good but come on up and talk to him so I went on up to see John and that's where I got into the case although the case was out at Coleman but John hired me and and uh, his wife uh, was out they didn't try to arrest her she had nothing to do with it and so she uh, she come to see me and she said that she could arrange to get some money to pay me and so she got John's mother to come down from Chickasha Oklahoma and all between them somehow or another they raked up a fee and so I knew that there wasn't any way for me to get John out. Uh, the bank had lost $16,000 of their money. And Walter Woodward, however, happened to be the, be one of the directors in the bank. And uh, so I went out to talk to Walter. I didn't talk to the district attorney anybody. I went out to talk to Walter. And I told him, I said, what's the least that you could take on a plea of guilty? Because I don't know these other boys. You've lost your money. Might as well count on it anyhow. And I, he said, well, I believe I can prevail upon him if he'll plead guilty and save a trial. To, uh, the bank will be satisfied of taking 15 years in a, in a penitentiary. And so um, uh, in the meantime, they had moved old John from Travis County Jail on out to San Angelo. That was the best jail in that area. They didn't dare put him in the Coleman Jail. There's just one and two officers there, and they had to pay drove boys, and Shipley would bring a gang in and, and take him out. And so they didn't do that. They, they, did, they kept him in Coleman. But in the meantime... I thought I might need a little help out that direction. An old boy named Bob Brown had been county or district attorney at San Angelo and was a classmate of mine in the university. And I asked Bob if he would kind of hold John's hand uh, waiting for the trial indictment. And I'd, I'd tend to the uh, negotiations and he could kind of keep John from uh, uh, kind of at ease out there and hold his hand. Well, Bob was willing to do it. It didn't cost much money to get him to do that. Well, on one or two occasions, I had to make trips out to San Angelo to talk over this trade with him and talk it over with the bank. And, and uh, as time went on, uh, it kind of, it, it, uh, the excitement wore out of it and the people wasn't so mad as they were and they found out that John was a pretty good boy after all. But anyway, they indicted him and the time come for his trial. And then before the time of his trial, I, I was making this deal with him while I went out to, to visit John at San Angelo Jail. And Bob Brown and I got him off in a little room by herself there where they let the lawyers talk. And, and uh, uh, John told me, he said, now, uh, Mr. Shelton, he said, uh, are you sure they're not going to give me any more than 15 years? You don't think they're going to get me down there and, and get me to plead guilty and then hang life sentence on me? Something like that, do you? I said, no, Senator Woodward is just not going to let people do that. I was a, he's my friend, and he's a man of his word, and, and those officers down there will do what he says do. And he said, well, I'm, uh, I want to be sure about that because if there's any question about it, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. And I looked at him. I said, John, leave. How are you going to leave? They got you locked up in this jail with officers everywhere. He said, I can leave whenever I take a notion. He said, they got me in the top floor here, the cell. And I'm a settled torch worker by trade. And 
I got me a safety razor blade and a little, some other little pieces of metal, and I've cut a hole in the ceiling of my jail cell, and I get out every night and walk around on the top of that jail, and I can climb down those walls if I take a notion and leave here if they're not going to treat me right. And then he, as an afterthought, he said, but you know, uh, that jailer down there, that night jailer, he's one of the nicest fellas you ever saw. Whenever I want something to eat, he'll leave and go across the street and get me sandwiches or coffee that's a little better than what the jail fare is. And, and he'd been doing that all the time I was in this jail. And I'll bet you that if I'd run off and leave him, they'd fire him. Now imagine, man, thinking like that, but that was John Sankin. So I, I convinced him that he ought to stay in jail, but I didn't tell the sheriff about that hole being in the ceiling up there. So uh, time come for the trial. And so I went out there in my car, and I was going to follow John and the, and, the, and the sheriff from Coleman back down to Coleman so I could plead him guilty, and Bob Brown was going to go with me. So I had Bob in the car, and we was over at the sheriff's office there at, uh, at the jail at San Angelo, and lo and behold, there was about eight automobiles full of rangers and officers and all, uh, all that end of the country up there was there, and they were going to put four automobiles with officers in front of the one that's carrying John and four behind. And I looked at Bob Brown, and I said, Bob, we ain't going to get in that parade. I said, if somebody would have a backfire, we'd be the first one to shoot. I said, they can go to Coleman in that parade, but we're going to go some other different way. So we went around about way, but we got down there before they did. And so when we, I was sitting in the sheriff's office there and with Bob and next to the courtroom, we was going to try him that day. And uh, Senator Wood was in there. We was talking to him, and, and they brought old John in. Oh, there wasn't enough room in the, in the sheriff's office for all the officers that brought him in. He was manacled from hand to foot. And he had handcuffs on his arms. And, and when we got in there, the sheriff got his key out going to take these handcuffs off. And John told the sheriff, he said, Sheriff, you know, when you put these things on me over at San Angelo, I told you you didn't need to do it, that I had agreed to take 15 years, and, and I'm going to take it, I'm going on down there, and I'm going to serve the time that I have to, and I'm going to get out, I'm going to change my way of living. But he said, I told you over there you didn't need to, to put these on me. And, and you said, well, just as a matter of course you had to do it. Well, now let me show you how easy it is to get these things off. And right in front of us, old John reached in his pocket with one hand, and he got a hairpin out of one of his pockets. And he put that thing with one hand up and jiggled him around on those handcuffs somehow or another, and he took his handcuffs off and handed them to the sheriff. And the sheriff looked at him, and he said, Newt, as long as you're in my jail, I'll never turn another damn lock on you. And I don't know whether he did or not. But anyway, we went on in, had a trial, and John got his 15 years, and he went off down there to serve it. And that's the last I heard of him for about three years. And about three years after that, I was officing in the Capitol National Bank building, and uh, his mother come in uh, from Chickasha, and she had a brown sack of clothes in her hands. And she said, Mr. Shelton said, uh, uh, would you mind me leaving these clothes here? said, John might be coming by here for long, and he'll be, he'll be wanting them. Well, I said, Ms. Newton, uh, John's got 15 years in the penitentiary, and he's got to serve about five of that before he'll be eligible for parole even. Uh, there's no chance for him to get in those clothes. Well, she said, just, if you don't mind, I'll just leave him here. So if he happens to come by, it, uh, he can pick them up. Well, uh, she left them there. And uh, about a week or two later, I saw in the newspaper where there's a bunch of, they're, they're down at the Huntsville Walls, they'd found a, uh, a tunnel. They'd been tunneled under the walls, and it's almost ready to uh, release some of the boys, but they caught them before they got away. Now, there's, but John didn't get away on that trip, and I don't know what happened to his clothes. I didn't give them to, to the Goodwill Industries. They wasn't organized then. But anyway, there's one thing I forgot about. On the day that I went up and talked to old John, uh, Lee Allen had the pistol that he used in this uh, in this uh, robbery. He, uh, the rangers had taken away from him. And of course, that was part of the evidence of the case, and they had to leave it with the sheriff of Travis County. And uh, so uh, Lee had it, and he told me about it. And uh, so I uh, I had 
back. I had lunch the next day. It was I down at Luke's Cafe there, and on Congress Avenue, and having lunch. And Coke Stevenson came in. Coke was a friend of mine. And he sat down at the uh, next to him at the stool next to him. It was empty, and uh, he had uh, uh, he was in the legislature then. Might have been speaker. I'm not sure. That was before he became governor or lieutenant governor even. But Coke sat down there, and of course, him being from Junction, he was thoroughly familiar with Coleman and knew the people out there, and he knew that I represented old John. I'd gotten a little publicity there in the local papers, and so Coke and I got to talking about this bank robbery case, and I told him that John had a pistol off up there that he looked like he wasn't going to have to use for a while, and Coke told me, he said, I've got a I got a brother out at Junction that's deputy sheriff out there, and he needs a good pistol. said, why don't you talk to Newton and see if he won't let uh, me have that, and I'll take it out and give it to my brother if he's not going not gonna to need it. So I went up that afternoon and, and uh, talked to Lee. Lee said, if you if, if Coke wants it and, and Newton will give it to him, it's all right with me because we're not going to use it in the evidence anyhow. So uh, I went up and asked John if it would be all right that this man was a rather influential man there and he might be in a position to help him someday. And... and uh, uh, he, John said, well, I'm not going to have any use for it for five or ten years anyhow, so you might as well go and take it. So I put it in a sack, a brown sack over in the sheriff's office, and illegally I towed it on across to the Capitol, and Coke was in the House of Representatives there, and I took it over and gave it to him, and I presume Coke's brother still owns that. It's in the family anyway. They've had no reason to turn it away. But that was part of my experiences with the Newton. But now here's another thing that happened during that uh, time. Uh, one day about 2.30 in the afternoon, I know my office is over on the, is in the 12th floor and over in the northwest corner of the Capitol National Bank building. And a big, tall man with a pistol strapped on his hip and a big white hat come in my office and, and uh, asked uh, uh, if Emmett Shelton was there. And I told him I was Emmett Shelton. And he said, can I talk to you? Well, we went back in my office and I closed the door. I didn't know what was up. And he said, I'm Captain So-and-So of the Rangers. and I'm stationed down around Quirrell, Victoria. I forget where, where it was, but... Anyway, he said, now, uh, I'm in a position to tell you this, that if you can get, give me half of that money that Shipley and Roboys got away with on this bank robbery, if you can get a hold of that and give me half of it, I'll see that they're not prosecuted. Well, my mouth just went wide open and my hair went up my back of my neck. I thought, well, my God, this guy can't be, he can't be serious about this. He can't be a ranger and, and be doing that sort of thing. But, uh, I told him, I said, now, Mr. So-and-so, and I called his name, I, I forget what it is right now, but I said, I don't represent those men. I never saw them, and I haven't even heard from them. And I said, I have no way of contacting them, but if they contact me and are interested in that sort of a proposition, I'll give it to them. But I said, right now, you might as well count me out on that sort of a thing. Well, he got up, walked on off completely embarrassed, and as soon as he got down the hall far enough where I feared he couldn't hear me, well, I called uh, Chief of Police. Boss Thorpe was Chief of Police then. I told him what had happened. I said, Boss, is there a ranger by that name? And I called his name out uh, down around Victoria. And he said, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't have too good a reputation. He said, I have no doubt, but that's that, that, uh, that's the man and, and that he come in and made that sort of proposition. Well, I said, that's, that, uh, that's, that's an awful thing. And he said, yes, it was. But he said, I, I believe you're talking to the, to, the, to the real McCoy. Well, that was the end of my experience on that bank robbery case. unsuspecting stranger had better know the truth of wrong from right cause the eyes of the ranger are upon you any wrong you do he's gonna see when you're in Texas look behind you 
Cause that's where the Rangers gonna be. Yeah.